hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is John Bewin. It's Seen on Radio. This is part 11 of our ongoing series, Seeing White. Looking at whiteness, where it came from and what it's for. The thing about seeing white, and here I mean not our series, but the actual seeing of white, of whiteness, the thing about seeing white is that it changes how you see so many things. History. Politics, good lord. I am the law and order candidate. You can't watch movies the same way. The Sky people have sent us a message. Here's the white hero in Avatar taking charge of the tribal people of Pandora. You know, to save them. You ride out as fast as the wind can carry you. Come out on the wind. I'm not this You tell the other clans to come. Or sports, if you watch sports. There's a racially loaded slice of American life. Lynn flips it up and puts it in. Jeremy Lynn once again. He has been a surprise in the first half. But really, is there a corner of American life that's not racially loaded? Ice cream, maybe. Everybody just loves ice cream, plain and simple, even if you're vegan and not actually eating it anymore. Doesn't matter if you're black, brown, red, yellow, or plain vanilla like me. Right, so much for ice cream. No doubt this is why a lot of folks, especially white folks, would rather not see white. Complicates things. Even in our own individual lives, get to know a little more history, get a richer sense of what race is and how it works, and moments in your present and your past can take on new meanings. Take a story that you sometimes tell, this thing that happened. It's one of your better stories in a life not all that eventful, frankly. You've told it to friends over the years. You get to seeing white, and it changes on you. For my last bit tonight, I'm going to just stand here and tell a story, which is not something I usually do. As I said, the, uh, the, the show is usually pretty produced, so I feel a little naked. That's a recording of a live show here in Durham, North Carolina, late last year. A few of us podcasters based here in the Triangle got together and did this show at Motorco Music Hall. I was working on stories for Seeing White at the time, and I thought I might use this one in the project somehow, this personal story. So I told it on stage that night. I don't want to say I was naive as I walked down that street in a rough part of West Philadelphia. In 1986, the height of the crack epidemic and gang violence in American cities, pushing a pretty good 12-speed bicycle that was worth a few hundred dollars. I was 25. I'd lived most of my life up to that point in small towns in Minnesota, not places where you worried about walking down any street at any time. 
Minnesota, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all of the aggression is passive. <laughs> Gonna step in here with an apology. As I'm recording this today, it's about a week after the verdict in the trial of Geronimo Yanez, the cop in suburban Minneapolis who killed Philando Castile. My glib line there about passive aggression in Minnesota, it's a twist on a line Garrison Keillor used every week in the public radio show, A Prairie Home Companion. Somehow I don't think Philando's mother, Valerie Castile, or his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, or his little daughter who watched him get shot to death would find it funny. I'm sorry. All right, back to West Philadelphia, 1986. I'm walking down that street pushing my bike because I've just quit graduate school uh, roughly two or three weeks into a PhD program. I've decided very suddenly and decisively that I don't want to be an academic philosopher after all. That's another whole story that I'm not telling. So I'm leaving town and I'm leaving on a plane and so my largest personal possession, my bicycle, needs to be shipped. And in order to ship it, I need a bicycle box. So I call, I look in the yellow pages and find a bike shop about a mile away, call them up, guy says, yeah, we have a bike box you can have, come on over. I'm renting a room along with half dozen other grad students in a big Victorian house uh, on the edge of things, you might say, of a gentrifying neighborhood one block in one direction and beyond, yuppies and investors bought up all the beautiful Victorians and spruced them up and were living in them or renting them to students. One block the other way and beyond, this had not happened. It was very poor, almost all black. The streets were not considered safe in that direction. In fact, in the five weeks I lived in that house, it was broken into twice and the owner had just put bars on the windows as I was getting ready to leave town. The bike shop that I was going to was in that direction, the rough, the rough direction. So it's a nice September morning. I ride my bike over to the bike shop. The trip to the shop was uneventful, so my memories of it are sketchy. I do remember riding down the middle of a street because there were no cars in sight. I passed a young black guy about my age. He was on a bike, too, I think. I remember being a little nervous, paying close attention to what's going on around me, because let's face it, I stick out in this neighborhood. I'm thinking, it'll be okay. Hope it'll be okay. I get to the shop and pick up the box, and now I'm headed back. But I have to walk now, because a bike box is big and unwieldy, this long, flat, wide thing and I can't carry it while riding. So I've got the box pinned against my body with one arm and I'm pushing my bike with the other. Once I get off the commercial street where the bike shop is, it's residential and there's almost no one in the streets. It's a beautiful, sunny, peaceful autumn day. It's all good. I've got a pleasant stroll ahead of me. When I first see the two kids, they are uh, half a block behind me and on the other side of the street. Not sure why I even look back and notice them there. They um, are walking in my direction. They seem to be looking in my direction. Maybe just curious about the strange white guy in the neighborhood. 
they're young, you know, barely younger end of the teenage years. They are black teenage boys, but I'm not a racist, so I'm not making any assumptions. I turn a corner and keep walking. It happens pretty fast after that. When I look back again, the kids have crossed to my side of the street and they're noticeably closer. It really kind of looks like they're following me now. I could still be wrong. I take a few more steps and look again. And at this point, one of the kids, the shorter of the two, has separated himself from his buddy. He's practically speed walking towards me. And there's something in his hand. He's maybe only about 10 yards away. Now I can see the blade from here. It's about six inches long. Now, in, <clears throat> in thinking back on this incident over the years, I've had a few questions for my 25-year-old self. And one comes up here. A few of you may be having this question, which is, at this moment, why not just drop the damn box, which is literally worthless, jump on your bicycle, and <laughs> disappear? The answer, um, I'm afraid, is not very interesting. It's basically that sometimes I'm not too bright. Um, much later, I thought, oh, I could have, that's what I could have done. At that moment, I guess I was focused on my goal, or maybe not thinking too sharply, having seen that knife. Um, so I walk on, and now I'm thinking, shit, now what? But, and I see up ahead of me, um, amongst the uh, houses, a few doors ahead, there's a bigger kind of institutional-looking building. It's got a sign out front. And I can make it out with its, you know, Hillcrest or something. It's a nursing home. I think, okay, maybe a place I can duck into if, if I can get there. Trouble is, <clears throat> the kid is coming up alongside of me now. He's right there on the other side of my bike. Walking beside me, he's jiggling the knife in his hand. And he says, give me the bike. He is 14, maybe 13. And you know how some adolescents, puberty comes early, they have the bodies of men. This is not, <laughs> not this kid. He looks like I did at that age, he's a boy. A boy with a knife and some attitude it's looking kind of determined and a little aggressive, but also a little unsure. I imagine maybe he was sizing me up and thinking, you know, if this collegiate looking white dude thinks he can waltz through this neighborhood with a nice bike, maybe it's because he's a martial arts badass or something. I was not and am not a badass. I had no thoughts of fighting my way out of this situation, no interest in going hand-to-hand -hand combat with anybody with a knife in their hand, including a kid a foot shorter than me. I had, I had no plan whatsoever. And yet, for some reason, when he says again, give me the bike, I find myself shaking my head and saying, no, I'm not gonna give you the bike. So we're walking now side by side. Now we're almost to the nursing home. It's right there, 15 feet away maybe. He sees what I have in mind. He hustles ahead, turns and plants himself in the doorway and holds up his knife. I stop, as you might imagine, and there we are face to face. His knife is a foot or two from my chest.
This moment probably lasts a few seconds, no more, but it's frozen in my memory. Scary black kids in the inner cities are big in the news at that time. The murder rate rose through the 70s and Ronald Reagan's in the White House sounding the alarm. But then there's this actual kid right in front of me. Let's give him a name. Michael. Michael has a round face, short hair. I look into his eyes, he stares back at me. And before I'm aware of making any kind of decision, I find I'm taking one step to the side and then forward alongside him, pushing my bike and still hauling my box, and just kind of sliding past him and his knife into the entryway of the nursing home. He doesn't stab me, he doesn't follow. Once I'm inside and I call out, hey, can I get some help here? There's a kid with a knife. Michael, who's still standing in the doorway, says, what a pussy. After a minute, he and his friend slowly wander off. The folks in the nursing home called, called the cops for me. An hour later, a police van came, took me and my stuff back to the house. The, the officer was a middle-aged black man. He asked me what the hell I thought I was doing, walking through that neighborhood with a bike. And he shook his head and he said, it's a lost generation. I think he was talking about the kid, not me, but I'm not <laughs> entirely sure about that. Um, went home, put the bike in the box, taped it up, shipped it off to Minnesota. And 30 years later, I still own that bike here in Durham. And from time to time, I've told this story over the years, you know, at dinner parties and things like that. But it's never really had a point. It was just, you know, makes a decent story. Kind of a weird, scary thing. Did I ever tell you about the time I got held up at knife point, blah, blah, blah. But in thinking about it now, with given the way I see things now and maybe having a little more information and having become a little more thoughtful about what it means to be black and to be white in America, a couple things that seem worth saying. Yeah. First, one more question for my young self. Why was I so blasé about going into that high-crime, so-called inner-city neighborhood in the first place, thinking I could walk safely out of it pushing a valuable object in plain sight? I'd say part of my confidence was just reasonable. By now I've spent time in a number of quote-unquote bad neighborhoods, mostly because of my work and I would venture into just about any American neighborhood on a weekday morning. Walking through that one in West Philly probably would have gone fine nine times out of ten. But if I look straight and hard at what was in my head that day, I see other things now. I'd grown up in a world that always felt safe for me. And even though the whole country was obsessing about all the gangs and drugs and violence in cities like Philadelphia in the 1980s, I still carried my habitual bulletproof feeling. I was used to a world that kept me safe, and I just didn't believe that world would let me down regardless of where I went. And again, thinking back on what was in my head that day, there's something more cringeworthy. I think I expected to get credit for displaying my lack of fear, my non-racist, 
non-profiling swellness. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I imagined folks in the neighborhood looking at me admiringly, even gratefully. Damn, look at that. There goes one of the good white folks. Coming through, not believing the hype about us in our neighborhood. Forget mugging that guy. Give him a round of applause. So yeah, I was naive. Arrogant in a way. Presumptuous. I was pretty white. Here's the other thing to say from my perspective now. In the story as I've told it over the years, I'm the one in danger, right? The kid is the threat, I'm his potential victim. And in that moment, yes, he had a weapon, he was threatening me, he could have hurt me. But isn't it fair to say, of the two of us meeting on that street that day, in our everyday lives, Michael was by far the more vulnerable person. To say that, I don't need to know anything more about his life besides the fact that he was a black teenager living in that neighborhood. A place, like so many others, created with systematic inevitability by the history of exploitation and exclusion we've been talking about in this series. Here was a community of black people just a few generations removed from slavery, still struggling to find a way in, still pretty much walled off from the life of safety and opportunity that I took for granted. This is not about letting Michael personally off the hook. It's about finding his existence and his attempt that day understandable. I came down his street with my awkward burden, like a wounded wildebeest limping across the plain, and he did a dumb thing, a wrong thing, trying to get something he could sell. But if he'd done violence to me, the hammer would have come down on him. And he knew that. It didn't take any great bravery to make the instinctive decision I made, to hold onto my bike and push past him. It just took looking into Michael's brown eyes in that moment. If I'd seen real anger, real hatred, someone itching to stab somebody. But I didn't. I didn't see a killer. I thought I saw in those eyes that he knew how things were, how little power he had compared to me. Michael and I were both young Americans, but I'd walked into his America from an entirely different one. I didn't grow up really privileged by white people's standards. My dad was a high school teacher in that Minnesota town. My mom worked sporadically while raising five kids. They genuinely struggled to pay the bills. But my folks had college degrees. We were middle-class white Americans with books in the house. There was never any doubt my siblings and I would go to college. The road was nicely paved for me. And here I was in my 20s trying to figure out my new path now that I'd decided that the academy would not be sufficiently fulfilling to me personally. Michael and I lived in a country designed from its beginnings and ever since to keep one of us safe, to help one of us thrive, to give one of us choices. I wonder how he is now. I hope he's doing well. John. Chenjirai, how's it going? It's going well, man. You know, 
And I live in Philadelphia now. And uh, thinking about what happened to you, there's a lot of things I could say that would be kind of typical for this kind of conversation. Like, I could apologize to you for what happened. <laughs> since, since, since all black people are accountable for you know, <laughs> what that young man did. And because the violence against white people is, of course, the ultimate tragedy. Um, yes. But this is the Seeing White podcast. And you know, you know we don't get down like that. <laughs> That's right. Chenjerai Kumanika, assistant professor in the Rutgers University Department of Media Studies. He's also a journalist, organizer, and artist. In most of the episodes of the Seeing White series, he joins me to talk things through and keep me honest. All right. You've told this story in the past to friends, right? And, I, and I'm guessing they're white, they're white friends, mostly. Right? Yep, most are all. Yes. Right. I'm going to go ahead and assume that these were good white people. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, to a person. That's the only kind of white person I hang with. All right, keep it that way. Uh, <laughs> but, but I'm genuinely curious, what kind of conversations do good white people have about this kind of thing when black people aren't around? Because I don't, I don't have access to that. So how do, how do people react to you telling the story? Yeah, I guess, you know, what I would say and what from my memory is that the conversations are pretty superficial, kind of like the story itself as I, as I typically told it. You know, there's this, there's this whole... Uh, unspoken backdrop of a story like this of the you know the centuries old image of the dangerous black man threatening us more civilized white people and so there in the story there I go venturing into the the dangerous neighborhood the metaphorical jungle um, and sure enough have this encounter with this young African-American guy and his weapon but that's all kind of unspoken and the people that I would have told this to in the past are not the sort of people who are going to then proceed to say racist stuff and and you know right right as as I did not you know there there's a making some comment about well see there you go that's how those people are. you know that was it's not like that right but it also typically in my memory didn't lead to any kind of deeper analysis or even acknowledgement it's sort of a gee whiz response so that's a hell of a thing to to experience or maybe it's kind of what were you thinking why didn't you just give the kid the damn bike or you know sort of a discuss you know just at this kind of surface level of the of the actual story and so you know and that's i guess in a way what i'm what i'm fessing up to here is that i told the story in that spirit too just as a as an interesting yarn of something that happened with all that racial and historical freight sort of hanging in the air but not really acknowledged and talked about directly so i guess that's kind of my point here is to uh <laughs> confess to that and to try to address some of the stuff that i've left out uh when i've told it at dinner parties or whatever yeah and i mean i think it's good that you want to look more deeply at that backdrop right look at this and look at the white supremacist political and economic history that created that neighborhood in philly and to imagine, you know, why this guy that we're going to call Michael might have made some of the choices he made. Because ultimately, you know, my thing is when we as a society create situations where huge group of folks exist in a daily state of insecurity and unsafety, 
nobody really can expect to be safe. And and I guess given that kind of condition of disparity and exploitation, should we really expect to be be safe, any of us? Um, but mm. but if I could put on my my professor hat for one second, um, given everything that we've talked about, what what do you think is actually missing from the conversations that you might have been having when you told the story? Uh, you know, in thinking about this, and and re- very much in the spirit of of the seeing white project, and we've talked about throughout this project about sort of turning the lens around and looking at, you know, that usually when we look at race in America, that means looking at people of color and what's going on with them, with you, and that this in this project we're turning and looking at white people, and in that spirit, in this case, um, I wanted to talk about the flip side. Uh, we can come back to the, you know, to the trope of the of the scary, violent black male, and I want us to do that, and the specter of black on white violence, and of course black on black violence, which is a favorite topic of a lot of white folks. Um, but I mm. also want to talk about the uh, the body count on the other side, which we really don't talk about in this country. Ah, you talking about the weaponized whiteness, white on black violence. <laughs> White on black violence. You just don't hear that phrase a lot, do you? In the in the news no. media, um, or in no. school, or in the history books, or and you know, as I was thinking about it, a mental image kind of came to me without uh, sort of uninvited, um, and it's an awful image, but maybe it's useful for this conversation. Picture a, a gigantic scale, right? On one side the bodies of white people killed by black people throughout history in this part of the world. Okay, on the other side of the scale, the bodies of black people killed by white people in the United States and colonial America in the last 400 years. Right? It's grotesquely out of balance, of course. Yeah, I, you know, that's a good, I mean, that's a horrible image, but sometimes having an image like that is useful. Um, and let me say again, I mean, I'm in favor of creating conditions in which we all are equally uh, safe or at least where mm-hmm. the risk is more distributed more equally. Um, <laughs> but since you mentioned that, I mean, I would say, you know, yeah, we have to think about that. And I think one of the first things we have to do is we have to we have to think a little bit more broadly about what we're going to call violence because some of the most potent forms of yeah. violence are institutionalized things that organize people's lives and they kill in a slow and diffused way that actually touches maybe even more people. And so mm. I think I do think we have to call those things violence and you know we've talked about some of those things but I think we could just think about slavery and all the different types of physical violence that happened within slavery. I mean, yeah. There's you got you know, I think around the at the by the time of the Civil War, there's four million um, human beings enslaved in this country, and you know, there's just like it's, you can't even quantify it's how many black millions of black people had their lives stolen during their lives in that 200 plus years of chattel slavery. I mean, it's massive scale of violence. Absolutely, and I don't know. I actually tried to find figures about uh, estimates of if you were to add up all the human beings who lived their lives 
uh, enslaved in the United States and the and colonial America. How many people is that? And and I and I actually couldn't find an, an estimate like that. But there are some other numbers that that shed some light on that that I that I looked up. Um, Historians estimate that 10 to 15 million African people were captured by slave traders in the Atlantic slave trade between the early 1500s and the 1860s. Now, that's counting the Caribbean and South American slave trades, which actually account for the vast majority of those, of those people who were actually captured in Africa. Only about 5% of that total came to North America. Most of the black people who lived as slaves here in the U.S. over the centuries were born here. So most of those four million, right, in 1860 were, um, you know, were people who had been born here over many generations. But back to the, to the captured African people, the estimate is that up to 40 or 50 percent of those people died before they ever really lived as slaves. So between, between the time they were captured and their captivity on the African shore, uh, the Middle Passage, of course, which killed many, many people, and the process of being broken and tortured into slavery in the New World. Um, in looking up this, in doing this research, I came across a word I had never heard before that slave owners called it seasoning. There's a, there's a euphemism for the ages, the process of breaking someone down uh, and acclimating them was another term to slavery right. after stealing them from their lives uh, across the sea. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, the numbers get a little bit higher when you start thinking about, well, a lot higher, you start thinking about the difference between the enslaved people that were brought into the United States. There were more people, you know, brought into, you know, like the, the Latin American Caribbean. Right. And, you know, but I mean, if you're looking at the death toll that you talked about, you know, around two million or so but you know it's it's you know people who survive they also had shorter lives and i mean it's just hard to quantify so even for the four million blacks that were here by the mid-19th century it's estimated like half of their babies died you know things mm. like that and then there's like the violence because we're, we're counting violence right we're like building this yeah. image that you have on one so then you have the violence of separating families from each other I mean, I think people know that, but you know, I really, I've really been thinking about that lately. What that means to have your your children constantly under threat and actually being physically taken away, you know, wives and husbands and mothers, and you know, that's yeah. a special kind of violence there. And then, of course, there's lynching, right? So during slavery and then right. after slavery, until Reconstruction, you have that kind of racial terrorism. White people lynched over, you know close to 5,000 African-Americans during the Civil War in the middle of the 20th century. And those are just the ones that you could document. The real number, right. I mean, all these people who disappeared and were murdered without, you know, any kind of real accountability in the 18th and 19th centuries and, in, and even in the 20th century, those aren't even counted in those numbers. So these are the ones that we can sort of document. Yes. And a lot of us... I mean, I, I know that there's people feel like they have heard some of these numbers before, but I think that a lot of us repeat these numbers and kind of rehearse this because there never has really been a real attempt to account for this and to acknowledge the scale of violence against black people. Yeah. 
I, I really agree with that, and that's why I think it's worth having this conversation. And I could imagine uh, that there are people who would hear this conversation and say, "Oh my God, there they go again." You know, haven't we heard enough about this? And my, <laughs> I, I think the answer to that question is absolutely not, because mm -hmm. even though you know, to the extent that slavery gets uh, mentioned and talked about and acknowledged. It's usually in that, it's all usually just that one word, you know, it's this sort of big abstract concept and we don't have in our minds, we have in our minds, for example, that six million Jews died in the Holocaust, but we don't have in our minds that, um, I think most people don't know, I wouldn't have known if I didn't look this up, how many, how many people were enslaved when the Civil War started or any of these kinds of estimates of how many people died or you know had their lives stolen from them in in these ways we don't we don't get presented with it in a way that even begins i think to 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 get across the scale of the of the crime against humanity yeah but i mean i think this is really important when, you know if we're going to look at the the context of black people being understood as essentially violent, like we're somehow essentially violence is a part of us and that the primary fear that we should be concerned about in society is the fear of black folks, some massive black violence on white people. It's in that context, yes. especially that you have to think about this other skit, why it's relevant to bring that back up and say, well, if we're going to, if we're going to essentialize, <laughs> You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, right. you know, let's 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 like you said, let's get let's do a, a, a different kind of accounting. Um, I mean, the fact is that that there's nothing remotely comparable to these to these things. This this mass killing and violence that has been done by white people against black people. There's nothing comparable on the other side of the ledger. Uh, and yet, right for centuries now, white folks have been telling ourselves and each other that. Um, that you all are the, are the ones to be feared. Now, here in 2017, it is the case that black folks commit a disproportionate share of violent crimes in the United States today. And um, I looked up a statistic or two on this, on this topic uh, from the federal government. Black folk commit uh, over half of robberies and murders and almost half of the assaults in the nation's biggest metropolitan areas, though African Americans are only about 15% of the population in those places. Now, that doesn't mean that white people are justified in being scared when they walk past a black person somewhere, right? The vast majority of violent crimes committed both by black people and by white people are against you know, people they know, people in their communities, people who look like them. 90% of homicides committed by black people are against black people, and likewise, 83% of white homicide victims are killed by a white person. Right. You know, a woman named Afia Nangwaza taught me to call that interpersonal violence, you know, because right. that, that takes this racialized stigma out of it. You know, I mean... And that violence, it hurts. I mean, I, I've seen the, what the pain that victims and families have to go through, whether they're black or white or, or Latino or whatever, you know, your identity is. Violence is serious. And I don't want to, I understand if you've been a victim of this violence, it's, it's like you don't want to just write it off like, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, but, you know, the truth yeah. is, is that 
the the crime the higher crime rate among black folks is also a socioeconomic problem, right? And right. the Bureau of Justice Statistics says poor poor urban white people and poor urban black people have similar rates of violence. So again, you put people in certain conditions and it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is, they're going to you know, that you're going to have certain phenomenon of interpersonal violence. I mean, we this is proven. Also, you have riots, right? That's another thing that mm-hmm. there's a history of white riots of various kinds that uh, that can also be linked to certain kinds of economic conditions. Um, right. The problem is that there's disproportionately more black people than poor white people, which goes back, I mean, at least in terms of the, you know, relative to the larger population. Which of course, yeah. and, and that is linked to this history of exploitation that we've been talking about here. So you know, ex, you know, uh, exclusion from resources, from you know, government housing practices, all these things that have produced that. So again, that's right. a, you create that kind of condition where folks are insecure, and black folks are disproportionately in that situation. And then, yeah, the, what results from that is is then looked at as the cause as opposed to the result. Chenjirai, have you watched the dash cam video of Philando Castile being shot that came out the other day? Uh, I have not. I didn't watch it, man. I, you know, I, I watched these videos and I've, you know, I've marched and I feel like eventually I'm going to have to watch it because I don't think that as someone who's alive and has the ability to work against this I think eventually I do have to face it but I just couldn't when I when I saw that when I saw that there was that video I mean I read descriptions of it but I was like I just can't it's just something you know I just I knew I couldn't I couldn't see it um and I actually I wonder what what is the effect of watching so many of these videos and they're being shared. I mean, I think it's important on one level, but there's there's something that starts to become unhealthy about about um about that. So I haven't I haven't seen that video yet. I watched it and uh you know, it's clear that what we have uh is a society in which if a police officer says says they were afraid, and I guess I don't have any, it, it appears that Officer Yanez um, lost his cool completely. That he that he was terrified um, in that moment. Pulled out his gun and fired off seven shots. Um, but that we have a society in which if an officer says they were afraid, um, then that's all. That's that's that settles the issue whether they they had any justification or not for that fear um if the person's black at least and you say you're afraid then uh, we believe you and uh and it's all good and that's what judges and juries say again and again yeah if a black person is a, if someone else feels threatened by a black person of color a black person then they are, yeah, they're responsible for whatever happens to them. 
Yeah. That's the message. And then not just the message, I mean, it's, it's basically the law at this point because it's been reproduced. There's so much precedent for it that it operates as a kind of law. And, you know, as a, as a white guy, um, having these conversations with you and this one in particular, I, I, for what it's worth, which is probably nothing, <laughs> but I'll say it anyway, I just feel very humbled about my ability to, to imagine, um, to imagine what it must be like to be on the other side of that divide. Um, I can intellectually understand that you see these things happen and know that you could be next, that, that Philando Castile did nothing whatsoever to deserve being shot by a police officer aside from being a black man. And that he'd been pulled over, you know, 46 times before that, before this terrible thing happened. And, that, and I know intellectually that that would not happen to me, just as I know that my son, who recently made it to the ripe old age of 18, could go out of our house when he was 12 or 13 with his airsoft gun, sort of like the gun that Tamir Rice had in that park in Cleveland. Oh yeah, Tamir Rice. And it would have never occurred to me in a million years to tell my son not to do that, not to not to go out with his toy gun because a police officer might drive up and shoot him dead. It wouldn't occur to me to tell him that because in fact it would not happen. No cop of any color would do that to my son. Um, and I know that the way that I know the sun will rise in the east tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, you know, to say that I can imagine how it feels to be on the other side of that, I, I just wouldn't be honest. I, I can't. How it feels to be on the other side of that is it's horrible. I'm not going to lie. It's yeah, I mean, every time I, you know, every time I get pulled over by the police, I'm conscious that I don't even have to do anything dramatic. It, it could just if the person feels, you know, it's a subtle shift in my tone, certain body language could escalate to the point very quickly. I'm like I could feel the beats that would lead to me you know, be, could be me being killed, you know, and so I'm aware of that. You could tell the police officers aware of it. They're aware of the the power of the precedent of the law and these decisions that are behind them. So that's, yeah, that's not a good feeling. But I kind of, you know, a lot of times in these conversations, when we get into talking about how we feel about this, I feel like there's almost like this moment of catharsis that happens where we we try to feel and I worry about that because I wonder that after, if that feeling sometimes we try to walk away from that because now we felt or we try to connect or we felt Philando Castile's mother's pain or Diamond Reynolds pain it's like you know I'm less interested in I mean I'm interested we got to feel you know we're human but I'm, my thing is, what are we going to do? How do we allow this kind of system to remain in place? And because we're talking about people who recoil from that violence, but they also recoil. I mean, when I'm, you know, a lot of us recoil from the idea of a radical rethinking of the system that's called a criminal justice system. 
You know, people are comfortable with tweaks in it. People are comfortable with police training, body cams, those kinds of things. Even as the research comes out and shows you, I mean, like how much footage do you need to realize that the video isn't what's doing it? I'm glad we have the footage. But how are we comfortable with this system? I mean, I don't I, you know, it's there's a resistance. I mean, you know, people feel a lot, but there's a resistance to actually concluding. That this the system that's called the criminal justice system has to be radically rethought at a fundamental level that goes far beyond body cams and things like that. And yeah. I don't know if it's because people have family that are police officers. But or I don't know if it's just, you know, people don't want to. People sense that the lifting of, of really transforming the system. But the, the thing about it is, you know, so I, in a way, you know, I mean, you didn't you didn't necessarily ask me how I feel, but I am curious about or the question that I want. So we're talking about whiteness. The question I want white folks to carry with them is it's like what is that resistance really all about because it wouldn't take very many white people to actually transform the system to make those to, to end this actually I think it would take very few relative to how many white folks there are and I think no one is waiting for white folks to do it organizers you know I think Black folks have gotten the message like if we wait for white folks to uh, change these things, you you know, it's like don't hold your breath. Thanks, Chenjirai Kumanika. Our editor is Loretta Williams. Next time, an African-American photographer and her photo essay, My White Friends. Turning the lens, literally. Music in this episode by Sometimes Why, Lee Rosevere, and Blue Dot Sessions. If you're new to the show and the series, by all means go back and listen to what you've missed. The earlier episodes in the series go pretty deeply into history and help explain how we got here. Like our page on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Scene on Radio. The website is sceneonradio.org. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.